And so again, market really hasn't done anything drastically wrong. It's certainly getting some pressure from you know what's happening in Israel right now. That'll that'll pass here in the next you know couple of weeks, and everything will everything will reverse from that, right? So gold prices will go down, oil prices will drop as we get past you know past this whole kind of war fear thing. And then once that does, then we'll we'll start to see the markets kind of balance back out again. But again, we're getting a lot of just initial kind of noise around what's happening, and this will sort itself out shortly. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back here at the end of the week for another weekly market recap featuring my very congenial friend, portfolio manager, Lance Roberts. How are you doing, Lance? Good, good. How are you today? Good, good. Just trying to think of a good uh, good synonym for uh, for likable. And uh, I think congenial hits the mark. There you um, go. All right. Well, the market didn't find too much that it liked this week. Uh, S&P down about 150 points by the time we're talking here at the end of the week, Lance. Um, sort, of, sort of seems like fear uh, of many things is in the driver's seat right now. We got oil up three bucks. Um, gold is up really big over the past two weeks. It's up from like... Uh, 1835 to near 2000 uh, an ounce uh, at the time we're talking. Yeah. Uh, the 10 year just briefly kissed 5%. Um, even Bitcoin, you know, is on a tear now uh, at about 30,000. So um, what's going on? Uh, amazing what a few bombs in uh, Israel do for you, right? Yeah. So sadly. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you just have, you just is, have, is that uh, pretty much it? Just fear yeah. of Mideast and contagion? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, you know, and again, you know, this is you know just headline driven moves in the market. Market was doing fine Monday and Tuesday. We were holding up near the the fifty uh, day moving average, and then all these kind of headlines hit, and so you get this kind of knee jerk reaction until we kind of sort this out. And you know, as I talked about um, with Fox uh, Business earlier the, uh, this past week, um, I had a chart of you know the, the history of the markets going back to nineteen hundred with all the different. Um, you know, kind of war events that have occurred, conflicts uh, throughout history, whether it was the you know the Civil War, whether it was World War One, World War Two, and you get, you get, you always get these initial kind of knee jerk sell offs in the market because nobody really knows what the outcome is going to be, and there's always concerns about this is going to spread into some you know vastly bigger. And so you know, understandably, people you know can take defensive positions in that environment. Um, you know, so, but again, uh, historically, this sorts itself out pretty quick. The markets will get its handle on it. And, and actually, wars are good for markets because it increases economic activity. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So, well, you know, speaking of technicals and whatnot, maybe you can pull up the chart of the S&P, Lance, that we, we like to look yeah. at every week if we sure. can, just to sort of show folks where we are. Um, and, and once, uh, once we pull that up, and I've, I've got to give you yeah, authority to do that. Um, but once we pull that up, uh, if you can also maybe dial us through the simple visor, uh, charts as well, just to give us a sense of, you know, what sectors are sure. oversold, what are undersold, you know, vice versa. Sure. Absolutely. So, yeah. So it, uh, again, the market's not done anything really right or wrong or indifferent. Um, you know, we had triggered a buy signal, a MACD buy signal earlier this month. Now, importantly, we're still in October. And you remember, I wrote this article uh, right at the end of September. I got to keep my months in line uh, talking about October weakness. And I said, you know, it's very likely we could continue to see some weakness through October because until we get into November, 
Uh, that's when the window for stock buybacks occur. That's when you have your biggest inflows into ETFs and mutual funds at, for end, year, end of the year. Um, so again, this kind of October weakness kind of continues to play itself out. But you know, we had talked about earlier this week and our uh, both in our three minutes on markets and money that we do every day, and also in our daily commentary uh, that we write. Uh, we talked about the fact that you know this market was trapped between the twenty-day moving average and the fifty-day moving average, and you know, if we broke to the downside of that, then we were likely going to test the 200-day moving average, which is where we are today. So we're testing support at the 200-day moving average. Markets are not overbought by any stretch of the imagination. So again, market really hasn't done anything drastically wrong. It's certainly getting some pressure from, you know, what's happening in Israel right now. That'll that'll pass here in the next, you know, couple of weeks and everything will, everything will reverse from that, right? So gold prices will go down, oil prices will drop as we get past you know, past this whole kind of war fear thing. And then once that does, then we'll we'll start to see the markets kind of balance back out again. But again, we're getting a lot of just initial kind of noise around what's happening. And this will sort itself out shortly. Okay. Um, so just looking at some of the action here. So we are coming down, looking at the S&P chart there in the middle, to yep. the, the, the black line to the 200-day moving average, right? Yep. yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So um, sounds like you expect that to serve as resistance here, but uh, no, that, just... that'll, that'll be support. Sorry. So, yeah. Support. Sorry. Support okay. floor. Right. And then if we go through 4,200, then we're probably talking around 4,150 ish um, as kind of the next level of support, because that's going to run across these previous tops. This was the breakout level uh, that we had back in and really kind of June of this year. You know, you know we based back in October, um, came off that floor, then kind of traded sideways, February, March, April, May, June. The market really went nowhere for about three months. And then we just exploded once we broke out of that big consolidation channel. Um, we kind of exploded to the other side. So now we're going to come back down. And this is a very normal technical process as well. So we had this big breakout move from that consolidation. And so the market got very excited. So in June, July, we were up 15% for the year on the S&P. So uh, uh, for the market to retrace that, come back down and, and kind of retest that breakout level support um, is, is kind of a natural process of the market. It happens all the time. And if we hold there, now that's the key word, if we hold there um, and the market rallies, then we'll have a confirmed breakout of all that previous consolidation. So that's going to be a really good, solid support level uh, between this 4,200 level and, and say 4,150, somewhere in there. That's the kind of real critical support for the markets. Now, if we break through that um, for any reason, then we're going to go a lot lower. So, uh, you know, again, we'll have to you know reposition portfolios if that happens. But again, right now, we're you know, there's nothing to be too overly concerned about. It's a lot of headline risk. Um, don't want to diminish that at all. But you know, I'm I'm seeing a lot of nonsense and headlines and and stuff in the markets that are extrapolating, you know, these issues into much bigger problems than they actually are. Got it. Okay. So just to recap, you you think that the probability is more likely that the market will find support down here at some point. Um, maybe it drops below the 200-day moving average. You said 4150-ish is kind of the next key level of support. Um, but then market finds its footing. You know, we bounce back, maybe end the year strong. And we've talked about a number of potential reasons why that could happen. Sure. If it drops below 4150, 4100, then you think things could really accelerate to the downside. Who knows? We'll be tracking this closely. Looking up at the MACD indicator up there, yep. um, which, which you know, 
last time we talked, it was it was rising nicely. Now it seems to be you know short term peaking a little bit. But that that pink circle there with the lines crossed is that was that a buy signal? Is that what yeah, that, that, was, that that was your buy signal? And normally when you get buy signals from these very oversold levels, um, you get kind of extended rallies from those points. So so again, right now we're very close to triggering a short term sell signal. That's not uncommon, by the way. Um, you know, we can if we kind of scroll back, you know, in, in time, you know, here was another example. This was the October low. We triggered that buy signal, then came back, triggered a sell signal and then flipped back right back over into a buy signal again. So, again, this was kind of the same action that we saw back in October. Market rallied nicely, triggered the buy signal. We give it all back up. Everybody's panicking. Oh, my gosh, we're going to go a lot lower. And then the markets took off. So again, you know, it, you know, when you're at low levels like we are now, um, these kind of head fakes on buy and sell signals can occur. But normally when you're at, at fairly low levels um, as we are now, these are generally pretty good indicators that you've got a, a, a more bullish upside. Now, if this kind of flip-flop was going on at a much higher level, then, which can also happen, you can also have a, a, a buy signal. Here's a good example of this. This was the peak of the market back in January, December of uh, December and January of 2022. So we went up, we triggered a sell signal, and here's where we triggered a buy signal from a fairly high level, um, and then triggered a short-term sell. Then the market ran back up. We we had a declining top, which was a a, a negative confirmation. Then you triggered a sell signal, and that really kind of started the, the 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 ball declining. So when you kind of get these flip flops of buy and sells at high levels, that's normally a bearish signal. At the bottom, you can have these flip flip flops back and forth. Um, but when the markets are oversold and have been through a kind of a big decline, those are typically not always. Now look, you know, there's you know technical analysis is technical analysis, just looking at prices and making some assumptions. But normally, when you have a deeply oversold condition. Um, in terms of these MACD signals, et cetera. Those tend to be pretty good indicators. Again, they're not perfect. Uh, you can have these flip-flops sometimes. Um, you know, we could very well trigger a sell signal, come back down to this previous level, the market declines to 4,000. Then you get another buy signal and that's the, that's the buy signal, right? So there's, there's certainly risk. And, and this is what we talked about all week long is, you know, making sure to keep watch on risk because, you know, there is certainly some downside risk here. It's not all just, you know, you know, flowers and candy at this point, but the odds are that in December, November, December, heading into year end, markets are likely to be higher than they are now. Okay. Um, and so I just want to clarify here, we have that buy signal. We have not yet triggered a sell signal. Correct. Right. Okay. Now, again, and, and we're kind of midday here on Friday. So, you know, if the market rallies into the end of the day in, then that's going to pull that indicator back. This is a real-time indicator. So it's tracking moves every 15 minutes. Um, so if the market turns around and rallies back into to positive territory by the end of the day, then that's going to pull that indicator back off that that signal. So, again, it's just going to depend on where we end the week. OK, great. And, right, great. And, and by the way, let me just say one more thing. Just because you break a moving average, again, we could break the 200 day moving average. That's not a sell signal. Um, what you're looking for is confirmation. So if we took out the 200 day moving average today, let's just say the market just sells off into the end of the day and we're below the 200 day moving average. That's not a sell signal. What you're looking for there is for the market not to regain that level on Monday or Tuesday. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about that. I don't like technical analysis, you get whips on. That's because people see a signal and they immediately act on it. 
when you're talking about moving averages and support levels, what you're looking for is confirmation. In other words, you break a support level, you come back and retest that support level and fail. Um, that turns that support now into resistance. That's your signal to reduce risk. And, and so again, these support levels are only you know valid you know after they've been tested and retested again. Okay, great. Um, all right. Well, look, if we can, let's. Um... Oh, by the way, uh, so I forgot to mention at the beginning of this video, uh, folks, while you're watching this weekly market recap, uh, Lance and I and all the other uh, financial advisors for Wealthion are, are actually busy with Wealthion's fall conference. Um, so Lance and I wanted to film this for the folks that weren't joining the conference so that you, you got your daily dose of, of Lance and Adam. Um, but um, we are very busy at, at that conference listening to the amazing presentations there. And I got to tell you, Lance, probably the one I enjoyed the most was um, having seen a preview of it was um, uh, Tom McClellan's uh, presentation. You know, Tom McClellan, his family developed the McClellan oscillator, highly, highly respected technical analyst. He's got an amazing array of charts that have um, just these really crazy, oftentimes like super unintuitive uh, uh, correlations. Um, you know, we have a data series like oil or gold that, that may actually, it's highly correlated with other um, other asset classes, like oil's correlation with, with the general market indices is, is actually pretty amazing, uh, but they're time shifted, right? Um, and so it, it can be amazing because some of these are time shifted by you know a quarter or two, some of these are time shifted by a year. Uh, number ones related to oil are time shifted by like 10 years. And it's amazing how the correlations hold up, even though there's a 10 year time shift in the data. Anyways, long story short, um, he uh, his charts tell him that the markets are likely, more likely than not, to uh, end the year higher, right? So it's another vote of what you've been warning people about. Um, and then his charts tell him that there is going to be kind of a wheels come off uh, the car moment uh, at some point in the next, and I'm going to put this out as a teaser, in the next six to 18 months. Uh, and he his, his charts tell him essentially down to the month when he thinks it's going to happen. Um, so super fascinating. Lance, you're going to really enjoy that. And I'm sure you're probably enjoying it live with me right now, because at about this time when this video goes live, it's probably when Tom McClellan's presentation is going live. Uh, super interesting. But I just want to let you know, hey, he's corroborating your, hey, don't, don't you know, if you're, if you're on the bearish side, make sure you're not too vulnerable to the market ending the year higher. Um, but also, God, he's got some amazing fireworks that he expects coming up in the not too, too distant future. Um, yeah, all right. So, no, absolutely. But absolutely agree with that because you and I talked about, you know, recession next year, probably second, third quarter of next year. Um, you know, these interest rates, at, at, you know, it was interesting. You know, if you listen to Jerome Powell's speech yesterday, he said, he said, you know, uh, the market yield is restrictive. Um, you know, we're expecting slower economic growth, lower rates of inflation. And that's what he wants, right? So he he's keeping that one rate hike sitting out there. We've talked about this before. You know, he can't take that off the table. Um, when he said yesterday, as an example, during his uh, sorry on Thursday during his uh, his news conference, you know, one of his comments was is that you know we think yields are you know sufficiently restrictive because of what's been happening in in the yield curve, and immediately yields started selling off and you you saw bond prices go up yields go down so then he had to come back and back that up with but we could still hike rates if needed because economic growth is still a little bit too strong and we need it to be weaker 
And then yields ran back up again because of this <laughs> theory of one more rate hike. So they can't pull that off because the Fed knows if they pull that rate hike off that everybody's going to run right into bonds. And then that's going to pull yields down. That's going to give support for the economy, which is exactly not what they want right now. Because they want right. they, they want slower economic growth. They don't want a recession. They're going to get one um, because they always do. Um, but that's I agree with Tom is that you know next year, um, you know, that's going to be a year where bonds massively outperform stocks and you don't want to be in stocks next year. Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will say my my beating of the drum of, of uh, the lag effect really mattering. Let me just put out the teaser. A lot of the presentations in the in our conference are heavily validating that. I'm curious, Lance. Um, I'm just asking you to guess here. But in terms of the Fed uh, having over tightened, um, at this point, how how severely would you uh, rate their level of over tightening? A well, smidge, a tremendous amount. Where would you put it? <laughs> um, you know, they're going to figure out pretty quick that they should have stopped hiking rates probably five or six meetings ago. But, you know, again, it's, it's, they're always a day. Like, in fact, that's my article for Friday on our website. It's called uh, the feds Waterloo. And um, we're getting to that, by the way, I've got that here on the agenda. Well, and, and the whole point of that is, is that they may win the fight on inflation, but they're going to lose the war on, on the markets. And right now they think that they can, you know, fight this inflation fight. And if you take a look at their projections uh, for economic growth, they project no recession over the next five years. Right. So yeah, we're gonna win this war uh, as Napoleon won lots of wars um, until he got to Waterloo. Um, you know, when that's the economic war that they're gonna lose next recession, it's gonna be a lot worse than people think. It's not gonna be a little recession. It'll be a fairly decent recession. Now, I'm not talking financial crisis. Don't go get your bunker hat on. Um, but, you know, we're gonna be talking about, you know, probably 6% unemployment rates, um, you're going to be talking about much slower economic activity, probably going to be talking about a, a, a fairly decent surge in corporate bankruptcies. Um, and, and the Fed is going to have to do a lot of QE to start trying to bail all that out. Yeah, which is, you know, I, I showed a chart a couple, couple weeks ago in this program of the Fed's forecast for the Fed funds rate. And it is just this gentle drifting down <laughs> over many years. I think it's like four or five years from now <laughs> where it finally gets back down to like two. And you and I looked at that and you were like, we were both like, it is going to yeah. be so much more violent than that. <laughs> well, and again, all you have to do is look at it. And what's amazes me is that, you know, these, you know, this, you know, the, the Fed is 400 PhDs, right? And, and, and there was a great, there, just a, a good comment about this. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal on, on thir Thursday. And I talked about it with Michael Leibowitz on our uh, on our uh, YouTube channel that the Fed says, don't worry about student loan repayments because it's only going to be about fifty six dollars a month for individuals. That's that's all it's going to be. But later on down the article, that same article later on down the article, it says there's twenty two million borrowers. They have they have saved because of the you know, the, the moratorium on student loan payments. They have saved like $220 billion over the course of the last, you know, two, three years that they haven't had to make student loan payments. They've had this excess money to spend. And so if you just do the math, take, okay, 22 million borrowers. Actually, it's 44, but who's counting the difference? I was going to so say, I've heard million, in the 40s, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 44, but hey, it's the Fed, so it's, it's half. Right. So but you take 22 million borrowers, you take 220 billion dollars that, that they 
that they were able to spend on other stuff. Divide that, right? And you come up with a $215 a month average payment. So if their average payment was $215, how are they only going to contract by $56 when their payments restart? It's just this is the nonsense that comes out of the Federal Reserve to try to you know appease people. And you have to kind of read through the ledger of it. But you know, this is why if you go back and look at history, there has do you find look. I will I will buy the best steak dinner for anybody that can find me a period of time where the Fed cut rates slowly over three or four years. <laughs> right. And especially into a recession. Right. I mean, if you just look at every recession, you know, in living memory, uh, they hike, it's, the recession it's, starts and then, boom, you know, it's it's an elevator down. Yeah. Exactly. And, and it's every single time. So, you know, it's just, you know, this. But again, you know, they can't you have to remember the Fed can't say what they really want to say, because if the Fed had come out yesterday as in, on Thursday and, and said, hey, you know what, we're done hiking rates. Uh, we're seeing a lot of fractures in the economy. We just got a letter from the National Association of Realtors said if we don't stop hiking rates that, you know, we're going to blow up the housing market. You know, if they said any of that stuff, immediately you'd be in a recession. Immediately you would have interest right. rates falling through the floor. You know, uh, immediately the wheels would come off the cart. So they can't say any of this stuff. And yet the markets act like they actually know what they're talking about. So yeah. it just, you know, just you, you got to just, you know, kind of chuckle and, and move on with life. You, you know, it seen comes to my mind when you say that, because we've talked about this. The Fed will never say, hey, we think we're engineering a recession here. Um, it's that scene from, you know, the movie Airplane, right, yep. where uh, you know, everything starts shaking and they're telling people not to panic. And the, the signs of blinking don't panic. And then it switches to, OK, panic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it would be like. <laughs> um, all right. And hey, just real quick, you know, to that, you know, your, your anecdote there about the Fed and student loans. First off, I've never heard of anybody that has a fifty six dollar student loan payment. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and secondly, um, interviewing Stephanie Pombo yesterday for the conference, she said that um, uh, the number she had was that the repayment of student loans is basically going to take two hundred billion out of the economy next year. That's, um, that's, that's a, it's about 15 I ran the numbers uh, and it's been a little while since I've done it, but it's about 15 billion a month. So, yeah, if you run that out over 12 months, you know, you're you're starting to push up on you getting know, that ballpark. Yeah. And that's you know, that's not nothing. Right. Um, all right. So uh, you were going to the simple visor data and then we got sort of sidetracked oh. by this. Why don't you pull that back up? Uh, yeah, so, it, so just a couple of things. I mean, and, you know, just kind of where we are again, we're you know, kind of looking for where opportunities exist. You know, consumer discretionary, transportation, materials, industrials, real estate, financial, those are all have interest rate or consumer spending components to that. So those have been under the most pressures of late. Money's still hiding in, you know, energy technology and kind of these big cap names. Uh, and that's not surprising. Eh? It's the passive indexing effect that we've talked about before, the, you know, big mindless robot. Yeah. Um, hey, but also, sorry to interrupt, but just real quick, does green mean indicators are reading oversold yes. or is there a green, different way? Okay. No, no. Green is oversold. So that's when you're, you know, those are good time to increase holdings in those areas. Uh, when they're red, they're overbought and that's a good time to reduce those holdings. And if they're gray, they're kind of in the middle. You're not getting a great signal either way. Okay. Oh, and I just saw overbought and oversold. Yeah. You've got your key right below there. I should have yeah. looked. Yeah. Now, again, it, you know, we have to, you know, if we slip now this is relative. So that's just relative performance to the S&P. 
Um, if we look at absolute, so this is absolute performance. So, you know, this is just, um, you know, the absolute performance of the sectors uh, versus their kind of overbought, oversold condition. So this isn't comparing it to the SP. This is just comparing it to, to itself. Um, when you get to this world, you can see that energy is grossly overbought and basically everything else except healthcare and communication is really oversold. And, and so, you know, when you start digging in, looking, say, looking for opportunities, it's very rare that the materials, as an example, is this oversold. And this is what this kind of this top chart is. It's very oversold on a relative basis. And then, you know, when we kind of look down into its kind of top holdings, Lindy makes up 20% of that entire index. So, you know, also we have to, to take into account the impact of, you know, these, um, these passive ETFs. So if you buy basic materials ETF, you're buying 20% of Lindy uh, in your portfolio. Uh, so, you know, but you start digging through, you know, Freeport, McMoran, all these, you know, except for Cortiva, that's the only one that's really not oversold here. Uh, the rest of them in this sector are pretty deeply oversold at this point from a basic material standpoint. So there's some opportunity on the basic material side, but you got to have some caution here. Um, if we get into a recession, economic growth slows, materials are going to continue to underperform because they're economically sensitive. On a short-term basis, you may be set up here for a year-end rally for the next month or two. This is this is short-term analysis, so always keep this in mind that you know this is you know you've got a setup here that maybe materials will rally in the year end. Now, once we get to next year, all bets are off. So just kind of keep that stuff in mind. Okay. Wow, it's so funny. This is so that map is so different from the way it looked back in July. Yeah. Which I think one of the last times we pulled this up and looked at it where, you know, almost everything was in the red, right? We had like almost every sector crowded up into that top, what is it, the top right quadrant there of the over oversold. Yeah. yeah, and that's and that's over, over so this is yeah. right. So this is relative versus absolute. And and to your point, you know, back, you know, in June and July, all these sectors were crammed up in the upper right hand corner where they were all overbought. Now, except for communications and technology at this point, which and when you talk about communications, that's Google, Netflix, um, you know, pretty much. And then technology is Microsoft and Apple. So, you know, and, and NVIDIA. So, you know, those are still those have come down a lot. Those are like in the far upper right hand corner. Those have come down a lot. But you see the rest of the market is now pushed back into, into fairly oversold territory. And if we look at factors, so factor performance is, you know, small cap, mid caps, um, you know, mid cap values, semiconductors, you know, all that. So when we start looking at, you know, kind of, you know, all these different uh, kind of factor performances, those are all now, um, you know, down into that lower left hand oversold category. Emerging markets, uh, international have been under a lot of pressure. Um, you know, uh, you know, kind of a large cap value has been under pressure. You know, the only thing that's really kind of, you know, sticking up here in kind of the overbought kind of territory is um, precious, uh, metals. precious metals, yeah, which is still holding up right now. So what this made a huge is, run in the past two weeks, which is right, probably explaining that, right? Exactly, which is, so what this suggests is, is you sell precious metals and you start digging around maybe in emerging markets or international. I'd be a little bit cautious on those just because those economies are very weak. But you start kind of looking at, you know, kind of more of your value sectors for a rotation out of commodities back into value sectors. Right. And look, you know, I'm a big long term 
uh, fan of precious metals for many reasons we've talked about in this channel. But yeah, when you have a move this big that is largely, it seems, being driven kind of by headline emotion, um, yeah. it, it's vulnerable to, you know, some sort of resolution in, in the headlines. And all of a sudden, you know, it loses 100 bucks an ounce in a very short period of time. Right. Yeah, And, and look, I mean, you know, precious metals are it's a fear. It's a fear trade always. It's not an inflation trade. It's not a currency trade. It's 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 a fear trade. So when you have a lot of fear, people buy gold. It's it's just the offset for fear. And so right now it's playing well because of what's happening out in Israel. As soon as you get as soon as you get any resolution, gold will sell off. So you know we bought gold uh, in our in our uh, all weather model about a month ago. It's performed well. Uh, we're probably getting ready to reduce that position and swap that into value. Yeah. Hey, could you do me a favor? Could you go back to the previous chart where you had the different uh, sectors? Uh, sure. Um, you know, the one that had um, the, the communications and the tech companies in the upper right quadrant. Oh, oh, sorry. Yes, that's, that was the, uh, se the actual sectors, not factors. Uh, just one second. Yeah. Um, and, and all I want to corroborate yeah. with you is, um, you know, the markets have come down, you know, pretty substantially you know, over the past couple of weeks, right? We were like flirting with what, 4,500 or something like that. And now we're in 42 or something, yep. right? And I just want to corroborate with you. That, that's mostly due to these two, the the uh, the communications and the technology sectors becoming a little less overbought versus everything else falling into the oversold category, right? Just because those seven stocks just make up so much of the market cap, yeah. right? No, that's absolutely right. I mean, if we take a look at, you know, technology as, as a function, so this is relative. So this is, you know, relative to uh, the overall index, uh, overall to the S&P, you know, they just make up such a big chunk of that. And you're right, the technology was very overbought. It's now come down. It's kind of in a neutral kind of spot right now. So, you know, when you take a look at, you know, this is, this is, you know, kind of an, ex, you know, why this is the case. So when you buy XLK, Every dollar you put into XLK, 23% of it goes into Apple, 22% of it goes into Microsoft, four goes into NVIDIA. So you have 50%, 50 cents of every dollar goes into three stocks. Yeah. All right. And again, I just want to underscore here, um, kind of like our conversation about gold and headlines, right? It's, which is just, if the Magnificent Seven catches a cold, like the entire rest of the financial markets is catching pneumonia. Yeah, and it's really you know here's the 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 problem. I don't know what causes that, um, because again, because of the passive flows into ETFs and mutual funds. And sorry, but you're you're saying you don't know what's going to cause it to catch a cold, right? Correct. Right, yeah. because a these are the companies that are generating growth, right, in terms of earnings and revenue. Um, they're just they're just they just print money. They have they're basically monopolies in their industries to start with. So I mean, you're not going to displace Microsoft or Apple anytime soon. And Apple's very you know it's always funny because you know I, I was having a conversation. I was doing a, a video uh, the other day in a video interview, and we were talking about Apple versus Android, and and they were just you know kind of picking at me because I'm an Android user, and I'm like, well, you know, you're one quarter of the population. I'm in the three quarters of the population, right? So you don't realize that, you know, Apple users only make up one fourth of all mobile phone users, but they just print money, you know, every every year. So, you know, what's going to cause that to derail and all of a sudden say, oh, val you know, valuations are a problem. 
you know, this is one of those situations where Apple has got to stumble in some manner where they can't grow earnings at all and they can't grow revenue. Nobody wants Apple phones or Apple products anymore. Mm -hmm. And then they've got to become. Although, a although to be clear, they are not growing revenue currently, this, correct? This, this is a very true statement. But then my, my, my next statement after that was, and then you've got to figure out how to reduce their market cap weighting and all these ETFs, because, again, it doesn't matter what the stock, what the company does. When you're 22 percent or 23 or 25 percent, depending on what ETF you look at, um, if, when you're a quarter of that index and you're, you know, when the top 10 stocks make up 33 percent of the entire S&P 500, every dollar that goes into S&P funds and think about all the people now and 401k plans and individuals, nobody's buying stocks anymore. They buy ETFs and you're just fueling you know, those top 10 stocks. So it's very hard. You know, we keep looking around, well, what's going to cause this to derail? I don't know what's going to cause it to derail because you've got to break the ETF flows in order to break those stocks. Yeah, um, I made a note, actually, um, when I was talking to Bill Fleckenstein, uh, he mentioned Mike Green several times. Uh, and, and Mike is being sort of the expert and to a certain extent, the, the creator of the term giant mindless robot. Yep. Um, so I'm going to have Mike back on to do kind of a, another current deep dive into that. And that's one of the questions I'll be digging into him, which is, hey, we're all worried about some potential day in which the giant mindless robot starts going in reverse. You know, what could cause that? You know, yeah, what, what, what do you well, think is the likely trigger for that? Well, what you need is you'll need a 2008 type financial crisis where you literally panic people into just selling everything they own. So in other words, they just start dumping ETFs at random. You know, hey, I just want to get out. You know, the, the market's down. You know, look, a 20% well, cap capital flows, right? If I guess if net, right. net inflows become net outflows, the, the giant mo robot turns into a vacuum cleaner, right? Exactly. And, and so, but you, but let's just look at it real quick. The 20% correction that we had in 2022 didn't spook anybody. Um, as I, you know, I wrote multiple times, you know, through 2022. There were too many people that were emailing me, go, where's the bottom? I, you know, right. I can't wait to buy this bottom. You know, where's the bottom at? Because, man, I, you know, I, I, I want to be in. I want to buy these stocks. Um, and again, there were a lot of stocks down 80, 90 percent, like in the ARC funds, right? Those those stocks got decimated. But everybody was just you know, on pins and needles. They had FOMO of trying to find the bottom. And I go, well, this isn't going to be the issue. So, I mean, we've got to get to a point to where people go, I don't care about where the bottom is. I just want out of the freaking market because, you know, I don't want to lose any more money. When that happens and they begin to just dump spider ETFs and, and XLK and, you know, just every holding, all these ETF holdings just to get out of the markets, then that flow of money runs in reverse. 30 cents of every dollar is coming out of the top 10 stocks, which is gonna cause those, those prices to drop dramatically. Wow, um, if that were to happen, um, <laughs> that'll be bedlam. I shouldn't yeah. be laughing when I say that, but uh, uh, yeah, hopefully we can avoid that type of, of scenario, but you know, it's one we gotta be mindful of. Um, all right, so uh, thanks for going through the world of equities there with us. Um, let's now trundle over to bonds. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, the, the 10 year kind of kissed or came within a whisker of kissing uh, 5% this week. Um, I'm sure you get asked, you know, questions by nervous bond investors, you know, every three milliseconds, Lance. Um, so first off, um, I, don't really, I don't really understand the, the you know, it was like, oh my gosh, you touched five. We were like 4.8, 4.9, you know, you're talking about a 10th of a bit. 
Wait, I mean, that four, I think it's four point like nine nine. Yeah, but nine. we were four point nine four the day before, so yeah, it went to four point nine nine. I mean, you're just talking about market movement from one day to the next. It's not some you know, you know, you know, giant move. It didn't go from three to five overnight. Now that'd be a different. It doesn't, story, but we all right? have a memory of it back, you know, at yeah. one something not that long yeah, ago. Well, right? Of course, you know, this is called hindsight bias, right? And and so we all have hindsight bias, and this is where it was, and now look where it is, and. You know, so we come up with all these dramatic statements and that's okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but this is where you start making all your financial mistakes, right? This is where you start panic selling things and, you know, making all the wrong moves in your portfolio. You're worried about something that's not a problem. And, and again, just, you know, Mike and I uh, spent a long time on uh, Thursday going through bond math. You know, we have girl math, we have guy math, and now we have bond math. So, you know, uh, we went through bond math on Friday you know, if, and look, Adam, you know, it's like, here, here, let me give you, let me give you an example. Okay. Um, you have a million dollars to invest and you can only invest in one thing. And if I told you, here's an investment that has 29% downside and 72% upside, are you interested? I mean, I'd have to see what you're comparing it to, but it sounds sure I'd, I'd, I'd hear the pitch. Yeah. Okay. And, oh, by the way, you have a guarantee uh, return of principal function. On top of that, so your your risk is twenty nine percent downside, seventy two percent upside, with a guaranteed return of principal at maturity. Yeah, yeah, it's sounding pretty good now. Yeah, yeah. So that's a thirty year treasury. So yeah. if interest rates go up three hundred basis points, your downside risk is twenty nine percent. If interest rates go back to one and a half, which what they'll do during a recession, your upside is seventy two percent. So you know why would you want to make that investment? Right. No, I mean, you and I have talked about why, you know, it, it, it's historically very attractive here. Now, of course, the big question everybody says has is, is yeah, but I don't want to buy if it's going up to seven or eight and it's going to stick there for the next 10 years or whatever. Right. And and part, part of me asking this is for you to tell people if anything's changed in your thesis. I don't think it has, but let folks know. And I'm also trying to tee up your restrictive yields article. So that's hey, where we're going with all this. <laughs> well, no, and, this, and this is the thing that people also miss out. So, you know, right now you can buy um, a five-year treasury, right? That pays roughly 5%-ish, right? And so you're getting a 5% return over the next five years on your money, regardless of what interest rates do, right? So why wouldn't you want that? Yeah. You know, and, and it's fascinating. And here's what's fascinating to me, Adam, this whole thing. So when interest rates were at zero, right, and stocks are climbing through the roof, right? I cannot tell you how many investors, you know, they, they, everybody was convinced that the, you know, since 2011, there were some very famous, you know, people that were on all the media channels saying, oh, you know, we're gonna have a massive crash, a bear market's coming, you know, the financial crisis isn't over. You know, a lot of these guys that are massive short sellers, you know, Bill Fleckenstein and others, they were all out there. We're going to have this massive crash. So for 12 years, they were calling for a massive crash and it never occurred. But during that entire time frame, I had people coming to me and say, look, if I could just get 4% of my money, I'd be happy. If I could just get 4%, I have, I, I, you can I get went, 5%. I went, right? I went on this diatribe yesterday, which is, yes. I, I think for you, like forget 10 years ago, during 2022, I lost count of the people saying, I just want to have, if I could just get 4% on my money going forward, I'd be, I'd be in heaven. Right. And now it's like, now okay, you can get more than that it. now. <laughs> yeah. And the they're like, well, what, if it goes, 
But what if it goes to six? What if it goes to seven? You know, so what? You're, you said you'd be happy at four. Now I'm going to give you, you know, a 25, a 20% increase of that rate of return. And you're still not happy. But see, this is the whole problem with the financial markets and why investors consistently underperform over time. I wrote an article on Tuesday. To, to be clear, I, sorry, it's not the problem with the financial markets. It's the problem with human behavior. <laughs> right, which is the article from Tuesday on the website called Unintended Consequences. And I go through the nine behaviors of investors and why they consistently underperform markets over time because and we're we're going there too. <laughs> okay. So you have all these all these reasons, 50% of the reasons why people underperform the markets are all psychological. So, yeah. you know, and this is because you, you worry about stuff you don't need to be worrying about. And the, the coolest thing about the bond market versus the stock market is this. You can calculate to the penny when you buy a bond exactly what your return is. Period. I mean, you down to one cent, you can, you know, get know exactly what your returns are. You can't do that with stocks. You can't do it with gold. You can't do it with any commodity or a currency. Um, you know, there's no way to calculate with certainty what your returns are going to be. We can guess at it, right? We say, oh, we're going to get 6% on this or whatever it is. But with a bond, a CD, anything that has a guaranteed you know, return of principal in the future, plus an interest rate, you can guarantee yourself what your return is going to be. And all you got to do is be happy with it. Yeah. And, and that's and again, that's else. where human nature comes in, right? The one thing you don't know is, well, on a relative basis, is that going to be a good return or not for the next 10 years, right? And you can kind of talk yourself into knots, right? But you're making, you know, one of the, the key principal points why we encourage people to work with a good financial advisor, which is, as humans, our emotions, more often than not, influence us to make the wrong decision at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. Uh, and an advisor is sort of like a a reality check on you, right? Where they can say, look, hey, whoa, okay, buddy. <laughs> I get the emotion. Let's talk it through. Let's go back to the math, right? And they hopefully can help you, help prevent you from making the worst of the emotionally driven decisions. Um, all right. Well, so yeah, so you, you made like several of the points I was going to make. Um, so, uh, but anyways, so so yields are where they are right now. Um, and you've always said, look, you know, Hey, they they may go higher, you know, before they start going lower. But you and well, I know for sure that Michael is still very much on a great time to buy bonds train because he's delivering that right now, uh, that <laughs> message right now at the conference. Um, I assume you are too. Let, let me ask you this: I, I, I want I want I want to go to your article about restrictive yields will be the Fed's Waterloo because, like them or not, attractive as a bond investor or not, you know, cost of debt at this height with this economy is toxic for the economy the longer and it's more corrosive the longer it lasts right so i want to i want to get to your waterloo point here real quick though um so bill fleckenstein is quite bearish on bonds um he is totally open to the fact that there may be a bounce in you know the relatively near future meaning between now and 18 months from now or whatever right so the, the thing i think you and michael are playing for um, but he thinks that inflation will be more intransigent for the coming decade plus. And he thinks that, uh, you know, deficit spending will be higher. And he thinks that bond yields will generally be higher for the next decade plus. So he's he's not saying your strategy right now is wrong, Lance. He's saying, sure, it could work out. Right. But he's saying, as I look forward to the next decade plus, I'm much less sanguine on bonds than I'd say was in the past 20 years. W what's your reaction to that? Um, everything you said in that interview, because I got sent it by, you know, probably 20, 30 different people that watched it. It's like, oh my gosh, what do you think about this? Yep. 
Uh, everything you said is entirely wrong. Okay. All right. So basically, you have a different. And hey, you know, Bill, I mentioned No, it's not me having a different opinion. Everything you said is factually wrong about how interest rates and inflation work over time. And you know, there's and there was another guy that got emailed me to, and his name escapes me at the moment. If I think of it, I'll tell you. But uh, he was using a bunch of my charts and doing a a podcast that he was doing, and he's like, "There's no precedent for the amount of debts and deficits that we have in the U.S. right now. There's no precedent of this." It's like, really? Go look at Japan. You know, Japan has been running you right, know thirty percent right, right. deficits for the last thirty years. Their interest rates are zero. They're doing every, they're doing yield curve control to keep their interest rates from going negative. So you know, none of those factors that are mentioned are even close to being factually correct. So over the next decade, the risk that the U.S. runs is more debts and more deficits, lower economic growth, lower inflation, lower interest rates, worse economic prosperity. Uh, I, I, I worry for my kids and what their ability to generate an income is going to be over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, they, they will not have the opportunities to create capital like boomers did, like Gen Xers did. Okay. Um, interesting. Certainly not looking to pick a fight between you and Bill Fleckenstein. And and Bill and I talked about the fact that, hey, people have different opinions and, hey, it's smart people looking at the same data and coming to different conclusions is what makes a market. Um, you know, if you think there's sort of uh, more kind of fundamental, like, hey, I think we've got different facts here. Maybe, an, you know, if he's open, maybe an interesting, you know, polite discussion between the two guys would be interesting. And I'm happy to host it if you want to. But um, don't host but, it with uh, me. Host it with Lacey Hunt. Uh, yeah. And speaking of which, I I just saw Lacey's slides yesterday. Um, yeah. And what's, what's his opinion on the long term trend of interest rates? Uh, it's in fact, uh, not, if you want, I can pull up his uh, third quarter report that he just came out and he says, "Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know." <laughs> Look, I mean, it's it, Lacey's deflation, right? I mean, that's that's his that's his big concern. Um, I, I told him, <laughs> I told him after I saw it, I said. I'm I'm pretty convinced that uh, my audience is going to give you a standing ovation at the end of this presentation, and then turn around and go stick their heads in the oven. <laughs> yeah, and look, I mean, because again, you know, the 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 people that are arguing. So here, look, let's go back. Right, and and this is actually the subject of my newsletter this weekend, which is debts and deficits. Um, the the bears new meme. You know, and, and Bill Fleckenstein is a great example of this. He's been bearish on equity markets for 12 years. Now he's bearish on the bond market for another 12 years. He's been wrong for the last 12 years. So why would he be right over the next 12 years? We'll see. Maybe, maybe he is. Maybe there's some type of environment that comes out that we have higher inflation. But in order to get higher inflation, okay, what drives inflation? What drives inflation is very easy. It's economic growth, it's wages, and ultimately demand in the economy. So what you have to make the money argument- Money supply and velocity of money and- yeah. Right, and, and all that comes right back down to economic activity. So in order to have inflation, sustainable rates of high inflation, you have to have sustainably higher rates of economic growth. In order to have that, you need to have rising wages. You need to have more activity within the economy. You've got to have a booming financial sector that's just is able to loan a lot of money to individuals to go buy bigger houses and bigger cars and build more plants, properties, those type of things. So make the case for me 
about in an environment that we're in now, how are we going to create that type of economic activity? See, we had that type of economic activity back in the 60s and the 70s, which sure. is oh, yeah. because we were able to create $5 for every dollar's worth of economic growth. Today, it takes $5 of debt for every dollar's worth of economic growth. You don't have the capacity to generate the economic activity required to sustain higher rates, which is a function of the consumption economy. It's the debt. Debt is deflationary, period, end of story. Deficits are, go take a look. We've been running a deficit now since 1980. The trend of the deficits is lower. The trend of interest rates is lower. They are highly correlated. Debt is deflationary. There's a negative multiplier effect on government spending versus every other dollar spent in the economy. All right. Sorry. I'm just chuckling here because it's so weird to have you uh, who are you're always in the seat of telling me to slow my roll when I start getting on my my bearish tirades. Uh, you me up. <laughs> um, Don't get me going. Yeah. I had coffee this morning. <laughs> um, clearly, it looks like espresso double shot. Um so uh, I'm looking at the time as I'm, I'm just going to jump to this one topic. We don't have to spend a ton of time on it. Um, but it, it's interesting because Lacey goes through, um, actually, I go through the, the economic data uh, in the, at the conference with several people, Michael Kantrowitz obviously being one, right? That's the E in the HOPE framework. Um, and that was fascinating. Um, Lacey ends his presentation by going through a lot of the, the job, the, sorry, the, uh, the like hours worked uh, and uh, average wage data. Um, and it's it's very clear that that is struggling here. Um, uh, and clear that that basically companies are, you know, shifting full-time hours to part-time hours, and then they're reducing both at this point in time. So the only thing I think that's moving right now um, on, on the wage side um, is uh, these wage increases that we're starting to see in certain parts of the industry. I just wanted to note here that we've got, you know, strikes right now going on in Hollywood, in the automakers industry, uh, in uh, hospitals, like out here in California, Kaiser's got a massive nursing strike. Um, now casinos have joined uh, the, the fray here. Um, and so, you know, who knows what the long-term impact of this stuff is going to be. Um, but in the short term, how inflationary do you think that that's going to be, which is the higher wages that these folks are are likely going to get uh, from these strikes? It, it's it's negligible. You know, they're they're a very small portion of the entire employable uh, workforce. So you know, it's gonna they'll get a pay increase, sure. But just like Walmart uh, announced recently, you know, they gave pay increases before. Now they're cutting pays for new hires. So people that they hire now are going to get paid less than the old people. Um, so, you know, again, it's just a function that, yeah, you may get more, you, you may get more money now, but we're going to reduce hiring, um, after you. So, and, you know, we were going to hire as an example in the writer's strike. Uh, so, okay, great. You guys, you're going to get more money, but we were going to hire five, you know, 500 more writers. We're not going to hire those guys now. So it just eventually works itself through the economy because we're, you know, again, when it comes down at the end of the day, what, what are wages? Wages are an expense to the corporations. And so when it comes to a function of profitability, which is what Wall Street demands them to produce, right? That's how they, they make earnings. Um, if wages, are, and wages are the biggest, you know, wages and benefits are the biggest cost in any business. So when it comes down to pro net profitability for that business, if wages go up on one side, there's gonna be cost cuts somewhere else. 
and that's either going to be a reduction in the labor force. You may you may get a raise right today, but you may be out of a job in a month. Right. So, you know, that's that's why it always works itself out over time. Yeah. So, again, talking to Stephanie, you know, she she talked about how S&P earnings are currently projected to grow by 12 percent next yep. year. And right. she was like, you know, she was definitely taking the under on that bet, which I, I you know, recognized her for. And she said, yeah, but like, that's not a heroic thing. She's like, that's a pretty damn easy <laughs> bet for me to make. Well, well look, and, and just as we always look, you and I have talked about this before. That's why we call it millennial earning season. They yeah, always, yeah. Right. It, it's two twenty. you know, it's it's 12 percent higher now. By the time we get there, it'll be two percent higher or three percent higher. So they always just give themselves. Well, you know, a ton yeah, of well, that's, that's business as usual. Right. Yeah. But but I think she's also adding into that, that at some point, you know, there's going to be some sort of uh, reckoning where, you know, some sort of earnings uh, recession where companies are going to have to start, to your point, making yeah. the tough cost control decisions that they really haven't yet made. I mean, we've seen obviously more layoffs over the past 12 months than we'd seen in like a decade. Right. So, I mean, it's beginning to happen. But I think, you know, that she's thinking what we're seeing now is still a relative trickle to what's likely to come. And what's interesting about that is you're, you're nodding as I'm saying this. So I'm guessing you, you you think, yeah, there's decent potential that could happen. We spend so much time when we think about layoffs, looking at the big corporations, right, and reading the headlines. Oh, so and so just laid off, you know, 10,000 workers, whatever. But it's important to remember, and Lacey, Lacey helped me remember this, which is that small businesses account for three quarters of all jobs, right? right? And that's what really matters from a job loss standpoint, right? Because those companies aren't, uh, they're not flush with cash, right? And they have a lot harder time getting access to credit and banks are in a big tightening cycle right now, right? So, you know, those are the companies that are going to fall and stumble first. And, you know, that's where we can see, you know, a tremendous amount of, of potential job losses because they're the most vulnerable. So the bottom well, three they, quarters are... Yeah, they're they're vulnerable. So most of those businesses have five or fewer employees. Uh, they don't have access to credit markets. They don't have access to equity markets. They can't go do a secondary stock offering to raise capital to get them through a tough time. Exactly. You know, can't tap the public markets for help. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you, you know, we're seeing bankruptcies on the rise right now. And again, you know, when we get into a recessionary spat, we're going to see a very large chunk of businesses go out of business. And, and particularly that risk runs high in the uh, Russell 2000. There's a there's about 20 percent of the Russell 2000 could theoretically go out of business over the next two years. Yeah. OK. Um, wow. You definitely got up on the bearish side of the bed this morning. That's so interesting. No, those, no, those, those are just facts. I no, mean, I know they're facts. facts. But it is. <laughs> it's not but usually you're trying to put some sort of nice, you know, polish on them uh, today. Well, no, it, look, you know, I keep telling you, is I, I think next year we're going to have a recession. And look, it could be late next year. It could even be 2025. You know, timing the recession is going to be very hard. And, you know, timing the, you know, the impact of the unemployment is going to be difficult because we never really hired back all the people that we laid off. Full-time employment is still lower than it was back in 2019. So we laid off a bunch of people. And we hired a bunch of people back. Yes, but we didn't, we didn't overhire. So right. we may not get this big surge in unemployment, these big jumps in jobless claims that are normally coincident with a recession. We can still see a recession, but it could be a fully employed recession. Because yeah, of, I'm going to take the under on that, but you're right; it could happen. Yeah. I'm just saying we just we just didn't we didn't go through this massive hiring spree. You know, you hear these numbers like, "Oh, we've created 12 million jobs since the pandemic." No, we did not. We just hired back the people we laid off. 
So, you know, there's, there's a lot of unemployment out there that exists to people that have never gotten jobs that have come. Okay. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to jump back to bonds real quick. Okay. Um, Cause I wanted to give sure. you a chance to talk about your article. Restrictive yields will be the feds Waterloo, yeah. right? We've mentioned it briefly, but why don't you just kind of cut to the heart of, of, of why you wrote it? Well, this, you know, this is, you know, kind of the, you know, conversation uh, that was on Thursday with Jerome Powell's statements. You know, he made he made a couple of very important statements, um, you know, talking about, you know, additional evidence persistently above trend growth or the tightness in the labor market is no longer easing, could put further progress on inflation at risk, could warrant further tightening. And, and that's fine. He's got again, that's got he's got to leave that one rate hike sitting out there, uh, you know, in this fight, because, again, if he doesn't, it's going to reduce financial. It'll 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 ease financial conditions which will create inflation. So he's got to kind of keep, he's, he's in a very bad position at this moment because the, the interest rates are going up, which are creating much more restrictive uh, financial uh, tightness in the economy. That is going to lead to something breaking and it always has historically going back, you know, as long as we can track this stuff, there, there is always a negative outcome from this. We just don't know where it's going to show up. Is it going to be you know, in the general economy, is it going to be in the financial sector? Is it going to be in the housing market? It'll show up somewhere. We just don't know where it is. And and so the point is, is he may win his fight on inflation. He'll be able to pat himself on the back and say, yeah, we beat inflation. Yeah, we destroyed half the planet doing it, but we did beat inflation, right? So again, you win the battle, but you lose the war. And, you know, the, the war is ultimately is, is this is going to cause a, a bigger economic contraction somewhere um, and we just need to be uh, prepared for that. But it, it, again, it, because of the lag effect, it's going to take a while to get here. Okay. Um, I'm just going to ask this more for historical interest reasons. Um, sure. you, you compare it to Waterloo, Napoleon's Waterloo. Yeah. right? I, have you ever seen this chart? This is Napoleon's losses on his campaign into Russia. And it, it's a little it's a little hard to see, but, but um, it, it starts here on the left in the beige, the brown chart here. So that's the size of the the full army that he he departed with, and you'll see here it just gets winnowed down the further and further they get into Russia, um, yeah. and then then the black line is returning back to to France from Russia, and you see they're just getting decimated all along the way. So by yeah. the time he gets back, he's got this tiny little black line versus you know this massive audio, uh, army that he had left with. So I guess my question is is do you think it could be more Waterloo or, or more like the Russia campaign disaster for, for Powell? Uh, well, it just, you know, just, I, you know, it's interesting because if you look at the graphic uh, that I used on that, I actually used this uh, program. It's, it's artificial intelligence. I said, give me a picture of Jerome Powell as Napoleon. And so it gave me that image. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, the, the, just the idea though, that, you know, when, you know, when Napoleon went into Waterloo, he was, had just come off a string of victories He's very confident that he's going to win the Battle of Waterloo, and then he loses badly. And that's and that's kind of the point here. The Fed is very confident they're going to win this. This you know they're going to be able to beat inflation and not have a recession. They are overconfident in that assessment. The economy is going to beat them in this battle, and and the question is only when they're going to get de- they're going to get disinflation and actually get deflation when they get the recession. And, you know, they're hopeful that they're not going to have that problem. But, I, you know, there's really just no way to avoid it at this point. Got it. Your point is they may succeed beyond their wildest dreams. Uh, yeah, well, you got you got 
inflation below two percent, but but you probably didn't want it that far below two percent. <laughs> yeah. um, that's so interesting. I actually, I didn't take a look at that that image on the article that closely. I just pulled it up here. That, that's so creepy that AI just is able to do that so quickly. It is. It literally took about two minutes for that graphic. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's a cool graphic. It it definitely is a Napoleonized towel, but creepy that uh, yeah, that's that's only two minutes of AI work. We're all going to get replaced. I actually have a guy that I pay to to draft, you know, graphics for stuff. Um, he, he's a really good artist. And so we we produced, you know, a few of them here and there about Powell and, you know, different things from time to time and Janet Yellen and stuff. And I'm like, well, I just put him out of a job because I don't need him anymore. I just go to this AI program, which is completely free online and I can generate graphics. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, that is the wave of the future um, for for good and ill. Um, gosh, well, look, when you uh, when you replace me with an AI generated image uh, on, on this, Lance, um, just make sure you give me defined abs. OK, absolutely. You know, uh, and that's the creepy thing is that they have those AI programs now that you just give it the you give it an image. You write out everything you want it to say and it. And I can make I can I can create an AI you and tell it exactly what to say. All right. Well, why don't we do this next time? It should be you and, and Adam Headroom. You know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> um, all right. Back and forth that makes it work. Uh, all right. Uh, there is another chart I'm going to put up here in just a second. I want your reaction to, but but while I'm looking for it, um, uh, here's a headline. China liquidated the most U.S. securities in four years to prop up the plunging yuan. Um, there are some charts in this article, maybe I'll pull them up in a second too, that just show what a net seller uh, China and other foreign central banks have been um, over the past couple of years. Um, and I guess when you sort of see it visually, um, it, it really is kind of striking. Now, I know we've, we've talked about this, uh, the, the, the volume of the selling is, is not existential uh, yeah, to the really U.S. Treasury market. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, as these countries get more and more, um, you know, beat up by a strengthening dollar, you know, this what the, the beatings will continue until morale improves or what? Yeah, yeah. Basically, you know, again, you know, the reason that, you know, countries uh, buy or sell treasuries is mostly to, to what we call sanitized trade um, in order to keep their currencies kind of closely pegged since the dollar is the reserve currency. And that's where. The vast majority of your trades occur. About seventy percent of your trades are done in dollars. So they buy or sell treasuries in order to keep that relationship somewhat line. They can't control it entirely, but they can do that to try to to you know sanitize these trades to to keep imbalances from occurring. Um, you know, but let me show you a chart of this because we can just put this to bed really fast. Um, this has been one of the kind of the misnomers running around the market is, oh my gosh, all these, you know, all these people are selling all of our bonds. Nobody wants our debt. Uh, this is net purchases of U.S. treasuries and billions. Um, the only seller that we have um, right now is the Fed. Um, U.S. financial sector is buying bonds. U.S. households and nonprofits are buying bonds. Other domestic investors are buying bonds. The rest of the world is buying bonds. Um, yes, those have come down over the last couple of years because as we came out of the, you know, the, the, COVID, you know, everybody, you know, the U.S. wasn't just in isolation, right? The whole world was in isolation. We, you know, Europe shut down. Everybody was locked down, you know, France and, and England, everybody, uh, Germany, it all shut down their economies. Don't leave your house, stay home, don't do anything. Um, and so 
there was this big imbalance that went on. You didn't see that, you know, the purchases, if you go back to, you know, 2000 and look forward, you can see where central banks became involved in 2008. And, you know, we're basically running at levels right now that we've kind of been the average of since 2008 of, of foreign countries and, um, you know, other individuals buying bonds. You know, you see that one big spike there in 2020, that, and you see the, you know, half of that spike um, of that total in 20 billion in bonds was 10 billion was bought by the Federal Reserve. The Fed, so, yeah. Yeah. So, but, you know, yeah, but right now, you know, there's not a, you know, these countries aren't net selling our bonds. Yes, they may be selling a little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, China owns 800 billion of our bonds, so which is negligible when you talk about 33 trillion. So yeah, they sell a little bit to help balance currency, but you know, this whole thesis that everybody, nobody wants our bonds, that's why interest rates are going up. Yeah, that's one of those big fallacies. Basically, what you're saying is, is treasury buying right now still seems to be somewhat near the mean, uh, the historic mean. So there's no. No, no real reason to freak out. Right. And, and that and our issuance of debt is actually kind of below its trend right now. So we're not doing this massive issuance of debt. So again, seeing a little bit slower purchasing is important because, you know, again, we, we don't have a lot of excess demand, but we also don't have a lot of excess supply right now. Um, hang on a second. I'll, let me show you a couple of charts here. Um, so, you know, the top, this top chart right here, is the total federal debt of you know what kind of goes on? So you see uh, in the background the blue line is our total federal debt, and it certainly looks like we're just issuing this massive amount of debt, right? It's just you know off the hook, and this is what's got everybody concerned. It's like, oh my gosh, we're just issuing so much debt; it's just crazy. Um, but you know when you go back and look at your annualized you know three year growth rate um, over the last three years, our growth rate's been about six percent. In terms of our debt, so you know, again, it, it, while it may seem like we're issuing a lot of debt, we really aren't. Uh, in fact, when we take a look at uh, total total federal debt on log scale, so this changes it into percentage terms. We look at the long term growth trend of our of our federal debt going back to 1968. We're actually issuing debt at a slower pace than you know what we were back in the in the in the in the 90s when we were you know really issuing a lot of debt early on. So. Again, you know, it's important to keep these things in some type of perspective. More importantly, you take a look at uh, total federal debt as a percentage of GDP. It's declining. It's not growing. Um, you know, you can see that big spike in 2020 where we just went crazy issuing debt to try to bail out all the pandemic stuff. But since then, we've had fairly robust economic growth. So our debt issuance as a function of GDP is actually declining the, the total debt as a percentage of GDP. So again, a lot of these concerns that people, you know, are throwing out there about, oh my gosh, this is, you know, uh, you know, we're just issuing debt like crazy, and the swine interest rates going up. No, it really doesn't have anything to do with that. And our debt issuance isn't all that uh, dramatic relative to historical terms. And so, if we take a look at inflation versus the U.S. Treasury yield, Treasury yields are trading right about where they should be. What's inflation right now? Three point seven, three point eight. So interest rates are a little bit above where inflation is at the moment. Now think about that for just a second. When I'm a bond issuer and I'm loaning money to somebody. So Adam, I've, I've gone through this with you before, but Adam, I'm going to loan you $1,000 and you're going to pay me back over 10 years, that $1,000. So what do I need to compensate for? I need to compensate for inflation. So if inflation right. is 3.7, I can't charge you 3.7 because I wouldn't make any money. 
right? I get my money back on an inflation adjusted basis to be like issuing a zero, right? Um, but, you know, I need to make a little bit of money. So I charge you 1% more than inflation. So 4.7-ish right now, inflation's at 3.7. That's about right where the treasury rate should be. Um, if we take a look at where real economic growth is, real inflation is at this moment, we're about 1% too high relative to where interest, uh, where treasuries should be trading. And that's, that's just a function of psychological impacts and money movement in the markets and, you know, uh, people shorting the, the, you know, shorting bonds heavily right now. That's a big momentum trade that's been driving yields. But yields are about 1% higher than where they should be. Yields should be closer to 4%, not 5%. So, um, uh, again, when you just kind of go through the math and you kind of look at, you know, where we are relative to, you know, the fair value of where bonds are, um, you know, and go through the period of time, rates should be a bit lower, but not dramatically lower. We shouldn't be at 2% right now. We shouldn't be at 2.5%. Should be closer to 4 4 and a quarter, somewhere in there, because that's where the economy is actually growing. Now, when you get in a recession, that all that all that math reverses. And yes, you should have lower yields because you have lower economic growth and lower inflation. Got it. And just to tie it back to your thesis for holding longer duration bonds right now is you are expecting that at some point recession is going to arrive and um, inflation will drop and therefore yields will drop and therefore bond prices will go up. Yep. And then when that happens, I sell all my bonds and I buy stocks. Okay. All right. And speaking of stocks, great transition to this question. Um, here's the chart I wanted your reaction to. Um, so uh, right now, um, the uh, six-month Treasury bill yield is above the current earnings yield for the S&P uh, for the first time since the start of the new millennium here. So what, the past 24 years or so. Um, so interesting time. Um, guess another reason to be, you know, loading up on well, bonds right now. Well, so two things. I have a or real bills. problem. Yeah, well, I have a real problem with earnings yield. You don't get earnings yield, right? It's just that's the inverse of the PE ratio. It's earnings divided by price. You don't get it. If you buy a stock, you don't get a monthly check for your earnings yield, right? If I own a bond, I get an interest payment every quarter yep. or every year, whatever it is. So I actually get money. Yeah. It's a nice calculation. It just said what this what this does say is that you're better off theoretically right now just buying a five five percent treasury bond versus what you would get out of owning stocks. Right. I mean, it's showing you on a on a historically historical yeah. basis relative valuation, you're getting a much better risk return on a T bill than you are in a stock right now. Right now, or on the S and P in general. Yeah, that's great. Okay. All right. Um, well, look, uh, we're going to have to start wrapping up here. Um, uh, as always, Lance, great. I'm going to get to your trades in just a second. Um, uh, I, I did want to go through your consequences are always unintended. Um, I think those uh, sort of life lessons on, you know, good and bad uh, investor behaviors. So which ones to adopt, which ones to avoid. That's important enough that I want to give that it's full attention. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep it here on the edge of my desk to, to next week. Um, okay. I'll just add, uh, I'll just end on, um, uh, you know, one last life topic here, which is um, it's been a, uh, it's been a big and kind of banner week for the Taggart family. Um, I have a sibling who has been, um, 
basically culminating uh, like a almost like a decade long professional uh, journey, and uh, and and ended up having to sort of uh, uh, present his case. And this has been like a like almost like a like, like I said like a, like a decade long uh, journey in the making. Um, he did that this week, and uh, unfortunately, uh, ended up getting the news that he was hoping for out of that. Um, I'm kind of going through my own thing, which uh, I will hopefully be able to share publicly with folks relatively soon. Um, but in the midst of all this, um, you know, kind of like fighting the good fight um, for uh, for yourself, but also just for the people that depend on you and, and really just trying to sort of like, um, uh, you know, kind of live your authentic self uh, and, and and, you know, consequences be what they may. Um, the whole process has reminded me of this great, uh, this great little paragraph written by um, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with this, Lance, the man in the arena. Um, yeah, we used to have lunch together. Uh, great guy. Yeah, I mean, you, you and you and Teddy Roosevelt used to have lunch. Yeah, together. yeah, yeah. That's how old we all are now. So okay. yeah, <laughs> that's to, right. Me, him, Methuselah. We used to play uh, mahjong in the in yeah. the park. I, I, I just meant I'm sure you're you're familiar with this piece here, uh, and I'm going to read it quickly because I also think it applies to to guys like you and I who are out there every day, um, you know, in the content creation world. Um, so, anyways, and, and it, this I think has applications for for everybody. Um, so let me quickly read it for those that can't read it on the screen here. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Um, now, Lance, I'm sure for a guy like you who, you know, did MMA, right? I mean, yeah. you've literally been in the arena. <laughs> uh, you've you've taken the the, the punches uh, for your errors. Uh, I'm sure you've known some high achievement in there. Um, but basically, you know, this is an ode to um, uh, to perseverance, to grit, right? Uh, to to dreaming and having courage, to standing up for yourself, to pursuing a goal, uh, and just putting yourself on the line, right? And I think uh, all of us, you know, could use more of this type of uh, affirmation in our lives and this type of courage and, and putting ourselves out there. Um, uh, you do it, you know every day is a capital manager, right? Not every call you're going to make is going to be the right one. You're going to err, right? right? But you're there trying to do the best thing you can for your clients. You're going to take their slings and arrows and they're justified when they're going to call you up and say, Lance, why'd you buy that thing that didn't perform right? Uh, but you're in there. You're also doing the same thing, you know, on your, your YouTube channel every morning, you know, putting yourself out saying, I think this is what's going to happen in the market, but it doesn't always happen that way. Um, so anyways, I'd love your feedback on this because I think this is, this is the kind of encouragement that I think we all kind of need in our daily lives, right? Which is to not shrink from the tough things because they're hard and there's risk and, you know, all that stuff. But, you know, kind of the David Goggins style, like, you know, just man up, you know, woman up, grab life by the horns. And, you know, you're never going to always succeed, but 
the the uh, the rewards are in the attempt, really, at the end of the day, and that's what life is all about. So I'll stop. I'll stop my opining here, but but I'd love to get your reaction. You know, it, it's absolutely right. You know, it's it's you know. So first of all, you know, I did MMA before it was MMA. I'm old, right? So I was just doing full contact martial arts before you know they commercialized it. So I don't want anybody looking up on MMA, Lance Roberts. I, I wasn't on MMA. Uh, it was before all this, but it was full contact, no no pads, no rules, and it was it was brutal. Um, I think they just called it street fighting back then. It it, it, got, it really kind of was. Um, Mad Max Thunderdome, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, but no, it, it was very brutal and very challenging, and and yeah, lost fights, won fights, and and you know when you lose a fight, you have a choice. You can either you know quit, or you figure out what you did wrong, and and you go try to win. And, and so, you know, if I lost to a guy, I would go figure out what I did wrong and, and why I lost that fight. And then the next time I would fight him, I could win the fight because I had figured out how to how to fix those errors. Um, same thing goes with, you know, I, look, I lived out of my truck for three years trying to build my first business. And, you know, it was tough. It was a struggle. But once I got it finally off the ground and, and got it going, then, you know, the success came after that. So. You know, but all through life, I mean, there's been success and failure and everything that we do. And it's always interesting because, you know, I talk to a lot of people and they're like, well, you know, I tried to start my own business and, you know, this happened. And so I quit. Well, when something happens, that's not when you quit. That's when you start because it's easy to start a business. I can go out and, you know, you see all these TikToks about, oh, just go form an LLC and then get this other LLC and do this and borrow a bunch of money that doesn't belong to you, then do this. And you're going to make all this money. Um, that's all great, fine and dandy, but that's not the way business really works at the end of the day. And, you know, the, the difference between people that succeed and fail are the ones that failed in the process of becoming successful. Because for most people, the first obstacle is the obstacle they quit on. The guy that succeeds is the guy that hits that obstacle, figures out how to get himself back up dust himself off and start again. Right. And As they, they say, failure is the best teacher, but you got to, you got to listen to it and interact with it. You can't just abandon it. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's, it's a tough process. You know, there's no, there's the old saying about there's no overnight success. It only took a decade. Um, you know, but that's, it's a very true statement. And this is the one thing that bothers me more than anything right now. Um, you know, I, you know, whether it's on social media or just when I talk to people in the public, it's like, oh, well, you know, the baby boomers had the best of it. And, and, you know, we don't have any opportunity now. And that's such a load of crap because there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing stopping you right now from getting up tomorrow morning, starting a business of whatever it is and, and building something great. There's no restriction in this country that keeps you from building opportunity creating something great. Adam started for nothing, created Wealthion, and now he's being very successful doing that. If he hadn't started it, if he hadn't tried to start it, it wouldn't exist. But, you know, here it is. And there's nothing stopping you from doing exactly the same thing. So if you have a passion, it doesn't matter what it is, go follow that passion. And yes, it's going to suck. You're not going to get paid for the first two or three years. You're not going to have health insurance. You're going to be living hand to mouth. It's going to be 80 hours a week. You're working on it. But eventually, you will become successful. And eventually, all the other traps and, and things that come along with success, you will have. 
but you've got to be willing to do the sacrifice to get there first. And whether, you know, I don't wish you to live out of your truck for three years. That's kind of what I'm recommending, but that was my sacrifice I was willing to do when I came into Houston to build my business, you know, but you can do it your own way, but you've got to be willing to sacrifice and understand. And one of the biggest mistakes I see of, of business owners when they start out, they launch a business and they try to pay themselves $100,000 a year plus. Benefit. Right. You know, can't do that. You'll be bankrupt before you know it. So you've got to be willing to, to sacrifice. You've got to be willing to fail. And when you fail, you've got to be willing to get up and keep going because, you know, if you stop, that's when you truly do fail. So totally agree with all that. And we've talked a lot in the past too about, um, you know, as parents, you know, we, I, I feel like our paths, our time in the arena has yeah. informed a lot of our per parenting style, right? And, and a big part of that is knowing how critical learning how to overcome adversity is, meaning you get knocked down a lot by life, right? But it's how how hard you can get hit and still get back up, right? Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, for most parents, it's hard to see their kids suffer. They step in the helicopter and the kids never get the opportunity to, to develop, you know, that, that ability to overcome adversity. Um, the other thing about this too, and I think this is a big reason why, why Roosevelt wrote it, um, cause he was a president that, that broke things, right. He, he, he really challenged, you know, the status quo. He did a lot of stuff, uh, kind of, kind of, he was a total maverick. Right. And he had a lot of people crapping on him for it. Right. And I think what he wrote about this is like, look, you know, unless you're like in the arena getting smacked around, like, I don't care what you say, right? But a lot of people do, right? A lot of people don't start because, oh, this guy said it wasn't going to be a good idea. He didn't share my, you know, my dream or, you know, I, I tried it and this guy didn't like it. And so I just gave up, right? Like so much of this is is looking internally and making that shift. I think we've talked about in past conversations where to be a... To, to fully step into mature adulthood, you have to shift from living a life based on others' expectations of you to living a life based on your own expectations of you. And that basically means like, I don't care what other people think, right? You know, is it, is it meaningful for me? And if it is, then I'm going to go do it. And the last thing I want to say is uh, on this is what I mentioned briefly earlier, which is, look, there are no guarantees in life, right? You know, you, you, you may have the dream, you may pursue it, but the millions may not follow that you initially thought, right? But the value really is in the attempt, right? Not everybody who starts a business is going to be the next Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or whatever, right? But if you are creating value in the world that, that is meaningful to you and you are using your life energies every day to make the difference in the world that you want to make, that's winning life. You know, as we talked about with the old people, right? And people live over 100. What do they care about? They care about relationships and meaning and then health, obviously, but that, that's self-evident. Yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, if, if you were not familiar with that man in the arena, uh, it's, what is it? It's not a poem. It's a little, I don't know, quote, quote I guess, um, you know, reflect on that today and ask yourself, you know, what is my arena in life and, uh, and how can I can, you know, spend more time in it and, uh, in, in, you know, benefit from the glories of the victories and learn from the setbacks. Um, it's a great, great piece of writing. All right, Lance, so wrapping up here, what trades, if any, did you guys make this week? None this week. Uh, probably within the next week or two, we're going to start shifting more of our short. So in our bond portfolio, within our within our portfolios, our bond section of our portfolio, we have a lot of short. 
We've got a good bit of inter, uh, kind of intermediate and we've got a chunk of long duration bonds. We're probably going to shift more towards long duration next week. Uh, so we're kind of just watching here uh, kind of where yields kind of settle out over the next few days. But we're about to make another shift in the bond portfolio more to the long side. Um, on the equity side of the portfolio, we're going to probably start within the next, you know, we're still expecting this rally in the year end. And then on that rally in the year end, we're probably going to shift a lot of the portfolio equity side of the portfolio into high dividend yielding, you know, deep discount value stocks to weather any type of economic downturn. Okay. Unless I do just want to point out real quick here that that you are modeling well um, what a what a quality financial advisor does, right? Is you have to have the courage of your convictions, right? And you are um, you, you've made the case for a long time as to why you think long treasury bonds are going to pay off well. You've kept us updated as you've been, you know, first dipping your toe in the water on the longer end of the duration curve. And then you've been, you know, increasingly adding to that and you're continuing to. And I know that every week, you know, every week that goes by that that rates yields go up, uh, you're taking more and more slings and arrows. And, uh, you know, your job is to not do it dogmatically, right? And I know every week you and Michael are duking it out in your um, portfolio meetings to determine if this is indeed still the right thing to do. But once you've made that decision, you're doing it, right? And so, you know, the, the slings and arrows will continue. And to be honest, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the future? I certainly hope you're right. And I think you're going to be proven right. Um, if not, you'll come back and tell us what was wrong about the thesis. But that's the point of a good steward of others people capital is that you're not being buffeted around, buffeted around by headlines or the winds of opinion. You're sticking to what you think is the right thing to do and be damned what everybody else in around the world might be saying about it. And it's interesting you said that up. Like if, I, if I'm wrong on my interest rate thesis, um, I still win. And the reason I still win is is because in order to have higher interest rates of you know eight, nine, ten percent interest rates, we've got to have booming economic growth, which means the equity side of my portfolio, uh, the S and P is going to be trading at ten thousand uh, versus forty five hundred. So I win. And so, you know, the, the great thing about where I am is I can't, I really can't lose. I may lose on one side of the trade, but I'm going to win on the other. All right. All right, my friend. Well, we'll every week we'll give you the chance to keep us updated as to where things are going. Um, all right, folks. So, yes, uh, if you've watched this, it means you weren't watching our conference. If you would like to order the replay videos of uh, the entire conference, all the presentations, all the live Q&A, uh, just go back to that same URL, wealthion.com slash conference, and that's where you can uh, purchase the replay videos. Um, and as we say every week, and I think Lance did a really good job modeling uh, the, the benefits of it this week, <clears throat> for the type of future that's coming, especially for the many reasons that Lance mentioned that you know, there's a lot of, lot of reasons to be kind of looking with trepidation going into 2024, uh, you should work under the guidance of a good financial advisor, not just a good one, but one that takes into account all the macro issues that Lance and I have talked about here. That narrows it down to a pretty small percentage of, of the financial advisory world. And maybe Lance, at some point, we should talk about what to look for in a financial advisor, um, because you know even better than I that there is a ridiculous uh, spectrum of quality out there. And for the types of, of uh, advisors that really focus in the details of the macro stuff that we talk about, it is a pretty thin slice of the universe that's out there. But anyways, if you've got a good one who's doing all this for you, great, you should stick with them. But if you don't, or you'd like a second opinion from one who does, maybe even Lance and his team uh, there at RIA, 
then consider scheduling a free consultation with, with one of the financial advisors uh, that are endorsed by Wealthion. To do that, you just fill out the short form over at Wealthion.com. Only takes you a couple seconds to fill out the form. These consultations are totally free. There's no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a free public service they offer to help as many people as possible, position as prudently as possible in advance of the potential developments that, that Lance has talked about in this past uh, hour and a half. Um, all right. Well, look, Lance, um, thanks so much, buddy. Everybody else, if um, you just think the highest and best use of humanity's time is to watch these weekly weekly market recaps with Lance and I, then please let us know by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Lance, buddy, as always, you get the last word. Uh, we'll see you all next week. Have a great weekend. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. See you next week.